Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Dr. Dauphiné serves as the Father Matthew Lamb Professor of Catholic Theology and is co-director of the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal at Ave Maria University in Florida. As well as being a seasoned professor of theology in the great books, Professor Dauphiné is chair of theology at Ave Maria University. I am thrilled as he has agreed to come and speak with us on C.S. Lewis and Thomas Aquinas as he has has intently loved teaching courses on these two giants of the faith for over, well, well over a decade now, right? How many years have you been teaching now? About 24 years. 24 years. Um, Lost my place. Isn't this exciting? He has also co-authored with Matthew Levering, Knowing the Love of Christ, an introduction to the theology of Thomas Aquinas, and Holy People, Holy Land, a theological introduction to the Bible. Wisdom from the Word, Biblical Answers to Ten Questions about Catholicism, is his most recent accredited work, co-writing it with Matthew Levering of Mundelaine Seminary. He has, he is attached as director, no, sorry, he is attached as editor and co-editor to over ten scholarly books in the areas of Thomas Aquinas, the Bible, and the renewal of Catholic theology. He has a podcast, The Catholic Theology Show, which he started in an effort to guide people towards Jesus Christ and the revealed truths of the gospel and the Catholic faith. And probably his most proudest uh, accomplishment, he has been happily married to his wife Nancy for 30 years? Almost 30. Almost 30 years. And have uh, three sons and also fun three granddaughters. So, oh, that's very fun. But yeah, uh, if you guys could please just give a warm welcome to Dr. Dauphinow. Well, I'm so happy to be here this evening uh, with you all. And I titled this talk, right, How Can Aquinas and Lewis Help Us Recover the Christian Faith? And you might wonder why I use that term. Uh, Well, we are in an age in a way that has rejected the faith. Uh, I myself, when I went to college, I had rejected the faith. And I went to college among people that had rejected the faith. I studied among people. I studied in North Carolina over at Duke University. um, And it was the presumption of most students and most faculty that the faith was no longer relevant uh, no longer scientifically demonstrable, no longer, right, no longer what people were doing. I <laughs> uh, actually had a reversion back to the faith, and then I had to learn how to recover my faith. I moved from engineering into theology because I just wanted to study this all the time. Uh, and I actually found out that occasionally, if you're really, really lucky, you can actually do this for a living. Uh, so I don't know that it's harder to actually get a full-time job in theology than to make the MBA, but... The odds are somewhat similar. Uh, But I was very happy to be able to do that. But I've really spent my life trying to figure out 
how do we understand what our faith is, how do we recover, and how do we continue to recover it? So I want to present uh, three major ideas today. Uh, But before I do that, I want to kind of have a preliminary idea from Lewis. What Lewis suggests, Lewis uh, was a scholar. He was not only a Christian uh, convert, uh, who wrote a lot of books on Christianity and apologists, but he was also, he had a chair of, uh, eventually, of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge. Although he taught at Oxford for about 40 years, it was Cambridge that actually awarded him a chair. Uh, his book, by the way, Preface to Paradise Lost, is still cited in Milton studies. Uh, and anyway, so when he got this chair and he wrote a lecture on, he gave a lecture that time, and the lecture was, a de descriptione temporum, on the division of times. And I want to suggest this is very important for understanding where we are. A little bit in a way we can kind of think of it, it's our origin story. Every great comic book movie, right, you need an origin story. How did the, uh, how did the uh, superhero find his own story or her own story? Well, what Lewis says in this division of times is he says if we look across the history of time and the history of the West, we're going to say, well, there's a great time from when the Greco-Roman world and its pagan phenomenon became Christian. And that was a huge change, right? The Roman Empire that persecuted Christians all of a sudden became kind of Christian. That changed the West. Uh, The Greco-Roman ideas that had been there became kind of taken up into the Christian tradition. Augustine, eventually Aquinas. This this great legacy. Uh, And then he says, of course, as you get into the Renaissance, you get a continuing deepening of that Christian identity intermixed with its Greco-Roman roots. But then he says, there's another shift that happens around the 17th and 18th centuries when that Christian conception moves to a de-Christianization. And this de-Christianization is basically what we've experienced in modernity and post-modernity. The rejection of the Christian synthesis. One of Lewis's, I think, really unique insights here that I really want you to think about, and this is, again, just trying to set the stage, is this idea that when the pagans became Christians, they went from believing in gods and human beings and order and kind of a cosmos and chaos, but some idea that there was a cosmos into which human beings lived, into like where we had to kind of figure our way out within a cosmos that was greater than we were. We had to find what were the real order, what was the real law, There might be many gods or one god, but there were some gods that were above us that we had to somehow satisfy. There was guilt, there was sin, there was sacrifice. This is kind of the pagan world. Now, when Christianity comes in, all of those ideas get taken up into the one person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ now is the true man, the true God, the true creator, and in a way, the true creature. So everything that was many in paganism becomes one in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the moral law. He's also the sacrifice when we don't fulfill the moral law. Everything. 
So then what Lewis says is then what happens in modernity and postmodernity is when it rejects Jesus Christ, it also rejects creation, the creator, order, nature, God, the gods. We, in a way, can't go back to paganism. We are, in a way, adrift. So there's something about our kind of post-Christian world that is a very unique phenomenon. In rejecting Christianity, in a way, we reject the best of paganism as well. So this is a way, as he considers this, our crisis. Uh, And I think if we just want to consider that as a situation, then what I want to do is look at a handful of different instances and consider this. And just to give you like an example that he uses actually, but I think is also telling, is if you're familiar with, say, Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens writes a great story called A Christmas Carol. He writes it around 1850, in the middle of the 19th century. It's a great story. You got Scrooge, right? Um, You have all the different stories. He got the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. Interestingly, we have a story about Christmas, and what do we not have in the story? Jesus. We have no incarnation. We have no angels. We have, well, no Christmas. We have Christmas, the theological, dense reality, now replaced with a moral paradigm. How do we become more generous to one another? And it's always better to stop being a Scrooge and start being more generous, right? But in a way, we can see there we already have Dickens, one of the great minds and great authors, trying to somehow tell the story of Christianity in a post-Christian world. So what I want to do now is I want to consider three major ways that Lewis and Aquinas can help us to think more clearly about our world, about God, and about ourselves. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is we're going to look at how our understanding of God, creation, and human beings, uh, how, how we need to recover that. Secondly, I want to look at our understanding of faith in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I want to look at basically kind of how we live in response to this through the virtues of courage and hope amidst suffering. So those are the three places we're going to look. So let's just start with this idea of creation and human nature. Now, just to give us a little sense for kind of the oddity of our current problem, Jean-Paul Sartre in the 50s, uh, who's an existentialist philosopher, he, in an essay called Existentialism is a Humanism, wrote this. There is no human nature because there is no God to conceive it. Jean-Paul Sartre, as an atheist in the middle of the 20th century, says there is no human nature because there is no God to conceive it. In a way, the pagans could have believed in human nature and still had odd ideas about God. But in a way, this is the point, is once we've rejected Christianity, we've now rejected the gods of the pagan world. So in a way, now we become adrift. There is no human nature because there is no God to conceive of it. 
Sartre would famously say that for the existentialist, existence precedes essence. Our being precedes our nature. There is no human nature other than the nature we decide we want to become. You can think about so many different ways that our modern society struggles with an understanding of what are we and what are we to become. Well, partly this is because this is the working out of that idea. If there's no God, there's no real... There, there's, there's no nature into which I can kind of exist in other than the nature I choose that I choose when I didn't have it until I chose it. Now, that's one of those ideas, kind of like Home Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Home Alone, right? Uh, but for the first day or two that you're home alone as a kid, it's the best world ever, right? The first you know, decade or so, maybe the first couple hours that you realize there's no God and there's no nature and there's no structure and you can do whatever you want. This is really thrilling and exciting, right? But eventually it becomes really bad to be left home alone because there's evil in the world and I don't know how to confront it. And eventually it becomes really hard not to have a nature other than the nature I choose when I have to navigate the struggles of the world, the evils of the world, right. and I don't really know how to live. Because the only way I can learn how to live is that which I choose for myself. Right. So that's kind of the starting point. Within that worldview, then obviously God becomes absurd. We become somewhat absurd to ourselves. And creation is nothing more than this evolving uncertainty. So what Lewis and Aquinas, I think, can help us with is I want to give a couple, just kind of like a couple key ideas here. So the first one is they help us to recover a sense that the world as a whole is a communion. Creation is a communion, not a competition. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, right, he says in letter 18 that the whole philosophy of hell is that to be means to be in competition. So the philosophy of hell is that to be means to be in competition. Everything is in competition with everything else. The good of oneself is in competition with the good of another. Now, Lewis, of course, is also a Dante scholar. He loves Dante. He loves the Divine Comedy. In the Divine Comedy in Paradiso, in uh, Canto 3, Dante actually says that to be in heaven is to be in love. So the philosophy of heaven is to be, is to be in love, to be in communion, whereas the philosophy of hell is to be in competition. Now, if we go all the way up into God, and Lewis does this, by the way, in the screw tape letters, but he actually says, within the Trinity, we have a communion. We have three that are truly three and yet also one in total and perfect communion. God then creates the world to be in communion with him. The world as such is in communion with one another. We are not in competition with God. 
We are only in competition with one another because of sin. It's only because of the philosophy of hell that we've fallen into acting like the demonic Satan or the satanic rebellion. So if that's the case then, and just to give you a little example, if we want to think about the world, if we think about, uh, when we think about creation, we don't tend to think about it as a whole. We tend to think about, you know, maybe studying bees. But if you think about bees, bees don't exist on their own. They only exist as members of a hive. They only exist with, well, you have to have a beehive. They have to be making honey. They have to be doing things. They're always living. It turns out you also need sun. You need water. You need plants. You need flowers. You need soil. You need actually earth. No other planet will probably do. You need our solar system. You actually need the whole cosmos, and you need God. The moment you genuinely look at any part of nature, if you look at it long enough, you will begin to see the whole. You will begin to see the whole of creation, and you'll even begin to see the whole of God and creation. In the modern world, we've become very good at looking at parts. This is the mode of empiricism. I don't look at the whole, I just look at parts. I look really long and really hard at parts. Now, one of the things that Lewis says in his book on miracles is he actually says, we've gotten so good at looking at things that we've forgotten that we are looking at things. Uh, Stephen Barr, who's a Catholic physicist and writes a lot on theology and science, actually says, it's just about physicists, he says, we've gotten so good at looking in, at what's in front of our eyes that we've forgotten what's behind our eyes, right? namely our mind. Our mind has the capacity to you know, almost know the entire universe in principle, even to know the creator of the universe. So the moment that I'm looking at a bee, I'm forgetting that I'm looking at a bee, part of an entire cosmos. So again, this idea is that we need to move away from competition and rediscover an idea of communion. So we are created for communion with God. And fundamentally, in our being, we are in communion with God. Both Lewis and Aquinas will say that God, who is the cause of all causes, has given his creatures the dignity of causality. Lewis will at one point say that God did not create a toy world in mere Christianity. It's not a toy world in which we're merely puppets and he's the only agent. We are truly causes. Lewis has a little essay called On Work and Prayer. And the short answer is he says God doesn't need us either to work or to pray. But he creates us with the dignity of causality, which means that when we work, we are truly helping his creation move ahead materially. And when we pray, we're helping his creation move ahead spiritually. What we do matters. And Aquinas is actually the one who develops that idea that God shares with his creatures the dignity of causes. God is such a powerful creator that when he creates creatures, they can become true causes. G.K. Chesterton will once describe, who was, a, was the man, uh, who Lewis had described as the man who had baptized his intellect when he read Everlasting Man. But he says, art is the signature of man, right? 
We're made in the image and likeness of God because we create. We are. We create art. When Chesterton looked back at the caveman, what did he see? He saw pastels. Well, no. Well, what, what did the cave? What did you know? The cave men and women do? They painted pictures on walls. Right? Human beings create art. We tell stories. We we represent things. So this is a sign that we have intelligence that goes beyond the merely material and empirical order. And this is something. This is a way that. Lewis thought this was absolutely necessary to understand because the moment we see in ourselves the capacity for moral and intellectual inquiry beyond the natural physical order, then there has to be a source of that moral and intellectual inquiry that is beyond us because there has to be an ultimate standard against which reason reason measures itself. There has to be an ultimate standard against which morality measures itself. As Lewis puts it rather simply, he says, right, you can only recognize a line is crooked because you have the idea in your head of a straight line. He says that was why when he was an atheist, he thought that the injustice of the world was an argument against God's existence. But then he began to realize that if the whole world were unjust, why would he say it was unjust? It requires a standard of justice that comes from beyond this world. Now, if you're familiar with Aquinas' five ways, I won't go through them all now, but I simply want to suggest that Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God, his argument for a primary mover, a primary cause that initiates and continues every motion and cause that we see in the world, that the governance we see in the world, the order that we see in the world has a source from beyond this world. What he's actually doing there is he's arguing, one, that when we look at the world and we discern these things in the world, we recognize there must be a cause of the world that is not contingent, that's beyond the world. But at the same time, he's also saying God is not another thing in the world. God is not another thing in the world to be in competition with the world, but God is actually the source of the world. And if we think about that idea then of trying to recover that true notion of God and that true notion of human nature, we can think about the difference between the private good and the common good. And there's an easy way to do that. You think about having your birthday, or maybe a birthday cake with your family or friends. Well... Everybody gets a piece of cake. But when somebody eats a piece of cake and somebody else gets a piece of cake, if somebody gets more, somebody else gets less. Turns out the cake is a competitive reality. And if you have a family, I had three boys, if you have enough boys around, sometimes it actually is physically competitive around food. But that's only looking at the cake in terms of the private good. What about the, not the pieces of the cake, but what about the piece of the cake? P-E-A-C-E. What about the piece that the cake represents among the family or friends? The more peace you bring to that, the more peace other people have. That's in a way the love of the cake, right? The peace and love of the family, the peace and love of friends 
is a common good. It's a good in a way of communion, not a good of competition. Uh, so then we recognize that it's actually the more we recognize the order of the world and that the order of the world is ultimately one of intelligence and goodness and beauty, and the more that we conform to that order, the freer we become. The more I conform to the order of love, of family and friends, the more I can enjoy the peace of the cake. Okay, so that's the starting point, right? To think about God, creation, and human beings with a larger sense of communion and rejecting the idea of fundamental competition. By the way, if you want to think about another, I mentioned Sartre, but Marx is another figure, right, who identifies the idea that the history of the world is basically the, um, the history of class warfare, that's an idea that the world is fundamentally in conflict with one another. The Enuma Elish, by the way, from Gilgamesh in the Babylonian cosmology, is another idea that the world's fundamentally in conflict. Okay, so those are the, that's the first thing. Second point tonight is I wanted to talk about faith and Christ, right? Faith in Christ. How can Lewis and Aquinas help us to have a better understanding of who Christ is, what Christ does, and how we can come to know him. Now, Lewis, in a very simple way, in mere Christianity, uh, I think really offers a great idea here. Is he simply says the idea is that a lot of people think about Jesus as a moral teacher. But he says, we don't really need another moral teacher. He says, we've had many moral teachers, and we haven't listened to them very well. Right? Plato, Socrates... Confucius, Buddha, all have taught us how to live better. Right? And we don't listen to them. So if Jesus Christ is just the perfect moral teacher, what makes us think we would listen to him? In a way, the problem is not that we haven't had good teachers. The problem is, is that we're bad students. So he says, what Christianity offers is a different solution. Right? Not just another teacher, but a redeemer. In the screw tape letters, he says that the early Christians were centered around two things, the resurrection and the redemption. One historical fact, right, that this man, Jesus Christ, whom you killed, right, rose again. This is what the apostles keep sharing in Acts. That's what they went around the Mediterranean saying, that Jesus Christ, who was killed right, in Jerusalem, rose again and sent his Holy Spirit so that we could have forgiveness of sins. So one historical fact, the resurrection, and one theological doctrine, the redemption, that somehow that death and resurrection puts us right with God. Now, Lewis at one time would say that this is what he couldn't figure out. Why should God die on a cross, and how should that help me? But it actually was Lewis's late-night conversation with Tolkien that helped him begin to understand this, and they were talking about this, and what Tolkien said is that Lewis, or Jack, every time you read a great myth, you love it because you think it's beautiful. But then when you read Christianity, you object to it. And what Tolkien said is that, wait a second, all Christianity is is God's myth. 
It's God's story. Because in all of human myths and stories, that is our attempt to make sense of the world and of God through some kind of ancient communal memory and storytelling. What makes Christianity unique is it's God's story about himself. And in that story, it really happened. Because God really did it. But it ought to affect Lewis in the same way that the other stories do. Not merely that it's an idea to be believed, but that it's a reality that has happened. Lewis would say, I don't need to understand how, I don't need to understand digestion to understand that I need to eat. I don't need to understand exactly how the redemption works to understand that Christ's resurrection offers me redemption. Right, Lewis does give examples along the way, but it's that fundamental insight that I think that he offers that's very helpful. Jesus is not just a moral teacher, he's a redeemer. And what does he do? His redemption restores us from being in competition with God back to communion with God. Because of sin, we had become in competition with God. In the problem of pain, Lewis describes sin as this fundamental awareness of our own self and that we choose ourself against God. He says at one point that uh, rather than seeing ourselves as a creature, and as a creature, we are always fundamentally gods. In a way, Lewis says we are always adjectives. We are modifications of God's eternal being in the created order. We come from God and we go back to God. But Lewis says we wanted to be nouns. We didn't like being adjectives. We wanted to stand on our own two feet to be gods without God. To be our own self, to be a meum, in a way to be mine. If you ever have like any two-year-olds in your household or you've babysat or had young things, but like, you know, the the two-year-old is always saying, mine, mine. Anyway, that's what the human race does, is we say, mine. In Paradise Lost, by the way, that Milton wrote, that Lewis wrote on, Paradise Lost, Milton will describe Satan in the story as basically asking at one point, how do we know we were created? He says, God's whole claim to have authority over us is the idea that he created us. But how do we know we were created? I wasn't there when I was created. I don't think I was created. I think I've always existed. This is Satan's character, at least in Milton. That what does sin do? Sin, in a way, denies our creaturely status. That's fundamentally what it is. It, in a way, denies that we were created for communion by God by God, right? And that instead we exist on our own. So this is, of course, the problem. And Lewis says, all of this problem is that human beings have always been trying to find something other than God that will make us happy. He even says, right, the whole history of war, slavery, um, oppression, poverty, everything in a way that has caused human beings to fight amongst themselves is because of this desire to find something other than God that will make us happy. Now, Lewis has a story 
an image that he gives in uh, one of his Chronicles of Narnia that I want to share with you. Now, also, we want to remember that these images that Lewis gives are not just kind of stories for fun. Lewis wrote, and he said this, that for me, the reason is the organ of truth, but imagination the organ of meaning. And he said that the imagination is not the cause of truth, but its condition. So we can only maintain truth or draw meaning from truth when we can attach truth to images. By the way, this is part of the whole incarnational principle of the Christian faith. We can't understand a God who is beyond all names and beyond all images, so that God becomes an image and becomes a name, so that in the name Jesus Christ we can find salvation, as it says in Acts 4. So this image that he presents is he presents an image of Eustace. It begins in uh, Prince Caspian. He says right there, and he almost deserved it. He's kind because he says he almost deserved it. Right? Eustace turns out to be perhaps based upon him his own self as a young man. He's a, um, a very annoying um, uh, you know, uh, know-it-all who uh, gets stuck in Narnia and is uh, making everybody else unhappy, always telling everybody how he's better than everyone else and how modern English society is much better than the world of Narnia. Right? But anyway, what happens at one point is he turns into a dragon. Right? Narnia is a fairy story. He turns into a dragon because he'd fallen asleep on a dragonish horde. He'd draw, fallen asleep on a dragon's horde with dragon's thought. What do dragons do? Dragons hoard gold that they don't use. Dragons, of course, are not dragons. Dragons are kind of a symbol of sin. They're the symbol of Satan, who is the original dragon or serpent. But they also, what do they do? They hoard things. What do we do when we sin? We hoard things that we don't even enjoy or don't really make us happy. So Eustace at one point becomes a dragon. Now they're stuck on an island and Eustace is a dragon. How do you get off the island with a dragon? Well, you're in the middle of the ocean, so you know what? You can't get off the island. Can't take enough food to feed a dragon. The dragon can't fly across an ocean. So they're kind of stuck. They're hopeless. So at one time, Eustace, the dragon, meets Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure in the story. And he says basically to him, let me undress you. And of course, he's a huge lion with claws, so he can rip the skin off the dragon. But the dragon, Eustace, thinks kind of like, I certainly don't want those claws to, to rip me apart. So he scratches as much as he can, and he rips off his skin. And it's there on the ground next to him. But when he goes to get into the water to bathe, the skin has come back. So he scratches again puts it there next to him like a snake skin. It comes off, but then he goes in the water, it's come back. And he does it a third time, and he scratches as hard as he can, and he gets off one more layer of his skin, of his dragon skin. But when he goes in, he's a dragon again. What's Lewis sh showing there? Is that no matter how hard we try, we cannot get rid of our own dragon skin. We can't get rid of our sin because it's our very ego that's the problem. I can't get rid of my pride because my pride's the problem. And when I get rid of my pride, I only become more proudful. 
So he says, let me undress you. And he has Eustace, the character, as a dragon, lie down and the dragon, the uh, great lion scratches and he says, he went so deep it went into his heart. And then when he ripped off the skin, it ripped off much more than any of his attempts ever could. And then he became a boy again and Aslan throws him in the water, baptism. In a way, that's what Christianity does. Christianity does something for us. God does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. So this is, this is the key point then of what Christianity does. Now the other interesting thing is that Lewis shows that Christianity then is first this true story. God's story, God's action to solve the problem of humanity. That we've become competitive with one another, fighting over pieces of cake, no longer able to find communion with ourselves, with one another, and with God. And Jesus does that through his death and resurrection. But he also... We need doctrines in order to understand that reality. In book four of Mere Christianity, Lewis will say that doctrines are maps. He says, what does a map do? Well, a map is the accumulation of many other people's experiences. And you need a map to get somewhere. At times, he says that, right, it's more fun being in the ocean on a boat, sailing, or on the beach, watching or surfing or whatever you're doing is more exciting than looking at a map. But he says the map is necessary if you want to go anywhere. So he's saying we can't live in our own religious experience. We have to study doctrine in order to grow, in order to go. If we want to change and if we want to grow and if we want to go home to God, doctrine in a way is the map. And he says, of course, the map didn't fall from, right? The map came from human beings that had profound experiences with God. First, Jesus Christ, who's in his human nature, had the most profound experience being the son of God. And then Mary and the apostles and the evangelists and all the great saints. So we're not stepping away from religious experience when we step into doctrine. When we step into doctrine, we're stepping out of our own kind of isolated experience and into the great experience of Jesus Christ and the church. When he speaks of faith, we'll also defend its creedal character. Aquinas will say that the creeds are a summary of scripture and that faith assents to what he would consider the 12 articles of the creed Right? And, you know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Right? Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born... I'm sorry, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Right? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Right? These, this is the realities. Right? He would say, those 12 articles function as the principles of the new, what he would call the science of sacred doctrina. If we want to have wisdom and knowledge about God, we go through the creed. 
But he says two things that I think are very important. Number one, he says that the creed does not stop at itself. He says that when we make an act of faith, it terminates in God through the creed. He also says that the creed itself is a gift from God in Jesus Christ. So when we have, when we exercise faith in light of the creed, we come to understand God as God understands himself and share. By the way, in the first question of the Summa, when he speaks about sacred doctrina, he says that, that God communicates his own wisdom of himself to others through revelation. And then in the first question of the third part of the Summa, he says God communicates his own understanding of himself to others through the incarnation. Right. So the revelation is not over, it's, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. But the faith is something that is solid. It's expressible. We can articulate it. It's always revealing a person, so it's always more than the propositions. It's, in a way, more than the creeds, but it's never less than the creeds. Okay, so third uh, element I wanted to go through now was to talk a little bit about courage and hope. Lewis would say that courage was the um, most kind of the most necessary virtue of our day and the one that was most often forgotten. There are many studies that have shown that rates of anxiety, depression, and kind of what I would call rage, are increasing. Uh, there were a lot of studies done during COVID by the CDC that showed like two out of five people have clinical, um, clinical anxiety or clinical depression, 40% of our culture, especially among the 15 to 30-year-olds. What is that? Well, Anxiety, depression, and, uh, and, and anger are definitely things that at times can become psychologically destabilizing in which we cannot really recover them on our own and we need help. But it's also the case that this is our emotional reaction to danger and to trouble. We either have fear, kind of the fight, or sorry, the flight mode, anger, the fight mode, or just shutting down, which is the freeze mode. This is our emotional way of responding to the world. And in a way, we've kind of forgotten how to help people become courageous. In this postmodern world, we often don't talk about courage. We more often talk about being clever. We want to outsmart danger. Right? We want to make the world safe. Instead of considering how do we face it when the world is not safe. As a little example, there was a lot of talk about not getting COVID during the COVID lockdowns. Right? Very few people talked about, like, well, what are you going to do if you die? Right? Should you have a will? Should you go to confession? Um, how do you prepare for death? Right? What's it like to die? It's kind of scary. Um, what's it like to, how do you prepare to have your loved ones die? Our tendency in the modern world is to think we can rely on our intelligence and cunning to outsmart the problems of the world. We don't spend much time on learning how to respond to them. Lewis would actually say that courage is the most important virtue because it's where all the virtues need courage in order to be actualized. 
Now, Aquinas, interestingly, he says that courage is more important than temperance. Temperance is the virtue that modulates our desires, desires for food, for sex, for other things. But courage, he says, is even more important because he says courage, fear of danger and death is more likely to turn us from the good of reason. It's more likely to lead us into sin and unhappiness. And I would say even within right, Christian circles, do we talk enough about courage? Aristotle famous, famously said that courage is the willingness to fall in battle. Aquinas takes that up, but he says that courage is the willingness to fall. Courage is the willingness to fall in life. He says there are two main ways that we demonstrate courage. First, by attacking evil, responding to evil, confronting evil. And then the second thing he says is by accepting suffering. And Aquinas actually says that courage is more shown by enduring suffering than by attacking evil. Because he says it's somewhat enjoyable to attack evil. Because evil's, well, evil, and we think it's wrong, so there's a kind of excitement to attack it. So we need courage to do that, but he says we need even more courage to suffer evil, because there's nothing fun about that. Now, of course, this courage that we experience is not on our own, because what did Christ do? Christ well, he attacked evil, but he attacked evil in a very odd way. Aquinas and Lewis will both say that um, Christ attacked right, tricking the devil into basically kind of killing him on the cross. If you know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Right? There's the great scene in which Aslan allows himself to be killed by the witch. And the witch knows the deep magic, which is that all traitors belong to her. In a way, whoever violates the moral law is on the wrong side of the moral law. But she says, he says, she did not know the deeper magic. And the deeper magic is that if an innocent one was killed by the witch, then the witch's power would cease, and death would begin working backwards. So the devil has, as Hebrews 2.14 teaches, a rightful authority over sinful human beings, which is we die because we joined the company of the devil. But when Jesus, who is innocent, dies, then the devil loses power. We are freed from this submission and slavery to sin. And so Christ then shows the greatest courage. He's willing to fall, not in battle. He's willing to fall on the cross. He's willing to suffer on the cross. Right? He does, in a way, both. So we have in this idea that 
ability to try to discover that we need to find ways. We are not going to outsmart death. We're not going to outsmart crime. We're not going to outsmart sin. We have to figure out a way. How are we going to confront sin? How are we going to confront our own sin? How are we going to have the courage to confront evil and to suffer evil? Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, will say that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In a way, we become deaf to God. We become enamored with our own self-sufficiency. And because of that, pain is one of the strange things that wakes us up to our need. But he says, ultimately, God brings good out of evil, ultimately through the cross, And then he says there's two other ways that God brings good out of evil through us, through accepted suffering and repented sin. And I want to say in a way, the best way we can show courage is by accepted suffering and repenting sin. Now Lewis says also, we have to be careful that we keep our hope not in this world, but in the next world. He says, we ought to work to try to make this world as good as we can, but we need courage and hope to help us have the strength to live with our failure to make the world as good as it can be. He says that, and again in the screw tape letters, he says, so inveterate is our appetite for heaven that our that the best way to make that we will often then come to believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics, eugenics, or science, or psychology. When we stop believing in heaven, in heaven, we begin to want heaven on earth. But of course, an earthly hope will not satisfy. And Lewis actually says one time in his uh, sermon on the weight of glory, He says that basically we've fallen under the enchantment of worldliness over the last several centuries in which almost the whole of our education and philosophy is trying to convince human beings that their good is found in this world. But fundamentally, we have a desire that can never be filled by this world. We always are desiring something more, a heavenly reality with God. Final word on courage and hope from Aquinas. Aquinas actually teaches that we should have a kind of certainty in hope, a kind of confidence of our salvation, because he says hope rests on two things, God's omnipotence and God's mercy. God's omnipotence and God's mercy has been demonstrated through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we see what God's plan for us is. It's not that we stay in isolation or in competition or in sin or in death. It's that we would be liberated from sin and death and be like the risen Christ. So I now want to just kind of come back to the end. So we've looked at three different ways. First, an understanding of God, creation, and human beings. Secondly, faith in Christ. Thirdly, this understanding of courage. So coming back then, how do we pull these together? Well, I want to focus on the theme of recovery. 
And I want to consider recovery because recovery is restoring communion. It's moving away from isolation and individualism, hopelessness, being restored and recovering communion. So three areas where we can restore communion. Well, first, if we're willing, I would say let's find communion with great saints and scholars of the tradition. St. Thomas Aquinas, right? Lewis is a, not a saint, but Lewis is certainly a great scholar and a great lover of the tradition. Right? We should develop, and I'd invite you to, become friends with Lewis, become friends with Aquinas, become friends with the dead, right? and of course, now the living in heaven. G.K. Chesterton would say that tradition, right, is simply the democracy of the dead. We give everyone votes, even the dead, right? Even your great, 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 great grandparents. So in a way, remember that when you're reading something, when you're learning through the Thomistic Institute or different things, when we're reading Dante, when we're reading Mark or Paul, we're listening into a conversation. We're stepping out in a way of our own isolation. We're restoring and recovering communion. Secondly, we should recover communion and restore communion with people today. Finding friendships, fostering friendships, becoming intentional about friendships. Almost all of your friendships are planned. They just weren't planned by you, right? You happen to be friends with the people that you were on the same floor with in your, when you were in the freshman dorms. Or, you know, I, one of my best friends was in fourth grade with me. Well, I wasn't planning on him being in fourth grade with me, but somebody planned and put us in fourth grade together, right? Somebody, maybe you guys are RAs or RDs, and somebody actually plans out the room assignments. And so it turns out you spend enough time with another person and around them, and you end up often, you know, that's the condition in which a friendship can happen. So I think if we want to recover communion, we really have to become more intentional in our modern society about fostering friendships. Um, and I don't think we should be overly demanding of our friendships either. Right? Start small. Like, you know, maybe, maybe your friendships are largely just acquaintances, but have more acquaintances. Right? Kind of get rid of the notion of the best friend. Just have better friends and try to make every friend a little better. Right? Don't let the best be the enemy of the good. And then the third recovery, I would say, is in light of this understanding of God and of Christ and of courage, right, have the courage to try to grow in communion with the only one who can actually hold our communion, right, with God through Jesus Christ, through his church, right? Ultimately, there is much in the world of which we should be afraid. Aquinas will even say that it's a mark of a well-formed mind to have a moderate amount of sorrow. Right? Yes, we have the spiritual gift of joy, but we also have a kind of sadness because we know there's a lot of suffering in the world. So I think we also need to maintain that deep sense of communion with God because we may not know what the future holds, right? but we know who holds the future. So thank you. I look forward to your questions. Okay, so we have uh, time for a few questions. 
Um, we'll just do regular Q&A style. So if you raise your hand, I'll bring you the mic. And just in general, I'd love to hear kind of your own sense. Do you, do you discern that we're kind of in this, what Lewis describes as this post-Christian, this de-Christianized society, which therefore is a little bit more adrift than even, you know, the Greco-Roman pagan society? Um, and then how does that, in either any of those areas that I discussed, are there other insights or questions or ideas that you have? Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, my one question is, when someone is convinced of the, the, the nature of the cosmos is chaos, what do you point to to bring them back to there's this unity? Uh, well, I mean, in, in partly, I think, you know, going to the theme of communion, which means all evangelization, in some sense, has to be what Newman would describe as cor et cor, cor, et cor loquitur, heart speaks to heart. It's got to be in the context of friendship, right? It might be an online friendship. It might be reading Augustine. But Augustine wrote that so we could become friends with Augustine, right? So the point of it in part is you've got to recognize what's, like, what, why does that person think that the world's chaos? You know, I thought the world was chaos because, well, number one, I thought the world was chaos when I was eight. I don't know. I'd watched a lot of National Geographic planet shows. I don't know if you watch a bunch of shows, but if you watch enough shows about kind of animals killing each other, and then this nasty creature that comes and destroys all the animals, man, you're like, ugh, I hate man. Like, you know, if only man would remove and just give the earth back to, you know, the creatures. It's like, I don't know, I, I just, and then when I was like, you know, I was 13, I had, uh, I had a, knee, a, a cousin die, I had a sister die, you know, I just kind of, I thought the world was darn chaotic. You know, but it was very visceral for me. It was intellectual, but it was also visceral. Um, and it almost took my own discovery of human love uh, with the woman who's now my wife before I became kind of open to, for the intellectual arguments to open themselves up. So partly, I think, again, we have to really talk to the person. Uh, I also think is that beginning to see different things, like you know, Einstein, for instance, who's often still respected, he would write that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Right? And like, because the universe is comprehensible, then there is ultimately a mind behind it. Right? Um, so, you know, I, and I think there's a way that, you know, some people might be more uh, attracted to, if you think about the three transcendentals, goodness, truth, beauty, I think almost all of our temperaments kind of at least find one of them interesting. You know, do you at least find, are you interested in beauty? Let's talk about that. You know, are you interested in truth? Maybe it's mathematical or scientific. Or are you interested in, um, you know, justice? Well, you know, it, those at least are signs that the world's not totally chaotic. I'd love to hear some more reflections or thoughts or additions, things I should have said, things I shouldn't have said. Or things you'd like to say. How about that? Thank you again for your time. Um, <clears throat> I also want to bring uh, back to what you said about use of scrub and uh, Aslan ripping off the skin. Yeah. It's kind of a reflection of not only getting rid of his pride, but just in general getting rid of his sin. Because like the skin of the the skin of the dragon is like, you know sin. Because as you said, sin. You know, it's it's covered. It's we're we're surrounded by it. We all this all the greed we have. It, it covers us in sin, and that we cannot 
ourselves get rid of it as much as we yeah. try. We need to bring it, you know, to God or a priest, you know, through confession. So I saw I saw um, that scene in the book, almost like you know, us talking to the priest or to God, um, confessing our sins, and then that way we be washed and brought back to grace, you know, and as well as baptism. It could be baptism, but yeah. I always thought of it as like a confession. Almost, right, yeah, you know. and, and in some ways, Lewis would say that he thought the, the ancient world had some sense that they were that they were might be on the wrong side of God or the gods, and so when Christians came around and said, "Wait a second, hey, look, here's a way to get on the right side of the world." Really, is both forgotten the fact that we're sinful, but of course, we also hate ourselves. I mean, Augustine describes sin as self-loathing, and. Like, like, just ask most people, do you like your job? Do you like yourself? Like, I think it's like 50, I was reading somewhere, 70% of people today are planning to quit their job like within the next year or two if you're under 30. It's like, I mean, not, I'm like, I don't mean, I'm not picking on young people, just these are the studies, right? But it's just like, but I feel like this is like, no, it's a, it's a great gift to get to work. It's a great gift to be alive, but we don't experience our lives as a gift. We experience our lives as like, wait a second, I don't even want to, I didn't sign up for this. Right? I think there's, you know, so, so that, that's, I think, that idea is at least getting people, they may not think of it as sin, but they do see something that they don't like about themselves in the world. And I think beginning to see, oh, that's what sin is. Like, that's what we've called sin. Right? It just, but I don't, you know, but, but we have this understanding, oh, sin is something else. But sin is exactly that sense in which I, I feel like I don't like being in my own skin. Right? You know what I mean? That sense in which I don't really, I don't find my life interesting. That's what sin is. Sin is that condition. We just have gotten, we, we, we don't like that word anymore, so now we don't know how to describe ourselves. Uh, Lewis would say in Mere Christianity that faith is fundamentally admitting the bankruptcy of our own efforts. And it's only when we admit the bankruptcy of our own efforts, then can we really recognize that right, God is doing something for us in Jesus Christ that we could never do on our own. Uh, Chesterton, in his Catholic. He was a very famous Anglican. He had a big conversion to Anglicanism. So why did he become Catholic? And, and, you know, and, you know, for Protestants who are there, you might find this interesting or not. That's, uh, I was an evangelical Protestant for a couple of years before I came back to the Catholic faith fully, so I, I understand a lot of the concerns and objections. Uh, but Chesterton said that basically, why did he become Catholic? He said to get rid of his sins. Because like he said, no other church claimed to get rid of them. No other religion claims to get rid of them. Some religions say you don't have them, but no other religion actually says, you have sins and we can get them off of you. He says, no matter how old you are, no matter how sinful you are, when you walk out of a confessional, you are five minutes old, like Adam and Eve, freshly made from God. Right? And I think that's that kind of, I think in some ways, I think Lewis is somewhat echoing, because I'm sure uh, Lewis had read that by Chesterton. Um, so anyway, I think it's just, that's a, you know, it, it's a really powerful meditation and kind of a powerful image uh, that we can continue to get to. Uh, and just one other thing, too, is that you can also just think about that. Like if you, I don't know, you know, like you, what if you mess, what if you do something wrong? How do you make it right? Right? Well, I don't know. Like I, I you know, you, I take your hat. Okay, well, I give it back to you the next day. We're probably we're probably even, unless he has really, you know, bad hair underneath or something, or a bad hair day. Um, but for the most part, we'd be like, okay. You'd be like, that's fine. I take your phone, okay, well, or I take your phone, I throw it, okay, well, I have to buy you a new phone. And 
you probably would still be like, I don't know, you, like a friend might break your phone and you're kind of like, oh, you bought me a new phone. It's kind of even, okay? But let's just say, I, you know, it's in Florida. We have a lot of gators. I take your dog for a walk, but I'm on my phone and I'm just scrolling, right? Hopefully not, but, you know, it, it happens to people these days. And, you know, your dog's walking there next to the water and the gator comes up and eats the dog. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know I've been trying to cut back on, uh, you know, uh, social media, but... I was just really fascinated by nothing, and I wasn't paying attention to your dog, and the gator ate him. There's just nothing I can do to make that right. I mean, you could, like, and that's just a dog, by the way, right? Okay. And that was through negligence. <laughs> just imagine the different things that we do to one another over time. And that's that sense, I think it's like, it kind of seems like, oh, the Christians are so grumpy or they're so dour. Shouldn't they kind of say that it's okay, that we can make ourselves good, and that seems negative? But you kind of realize, well, actually, no, there's a lot that happens in our interactions with one another that you can't make right. And in some ways, the best we can do is we can try to, again, restore and recover through accepted suffering and repented sin. But ultimately, we need a resurrection. Right? We need a new heavens and a new earth in which fluffy or at least, you know, fluffy in your mind comes back to life in your total satisfaction in beholding the face of God for all eternity. If you could, if you got the chance to meet St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, what's the one question you would ask him? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, Aquinas famously wrote the uh, third part of the Summa on the Eucharist and he put it on the altar and he knelt down to pray and Jesus came to him and said you know like what do you want I'll give you anything and he says right non nisite nothing but you Lord right Aquinas is really just people think of Aquinas as like a rationalist philosopher but Aquinas just has a big heart for Jesus right he left the Dominicans or he left the Benedictines uh, at like 18 and joined the Dominicans and his older brother's put him in prison, like, for a year, you know? Tried to send in a prostitute to get him to, like, leave the priesthood or whatever. But so he just was like, he, was, he, he loved Jesus a lot. Um, but I think for me, it would really be just that question of how, like, help, like, what can you say to me to help me learn to put, um, to put my theological understanding more into my spiritual life? And more into that desire of just, right, nothing but you, Jesus. Because um, that's what I find, at least for me, that just, like, you know, I mean, I, 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 I love studying theology. And I think it's a good thing to conform our minds to the truth of the faith. Um, but it's an even greater thing to conform our minds and our wills and our hearts. Kind of, and, and our livers. I mean, just, like, and, you know, the whole part of us. And, and, and that's hard. So I think I would want to just you know, ask him for kind of spiritual direction to, uh, you know, to learn to, you know, love God more and to, you know, to learn, learn to overcome, you know, pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, avarice, and sloth. So that'd be a good start. But thank you. So uh, C.S. Lewis has a quote where, he, I forget which book, but he describes himself as a baptized pagan living in a world of apostate Christians. Yes. Apo um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a, apostate Puritans, by the way. Is it? Really? It's a baptized pagan. He's a converted pagan living amongst apostate Puritans. Okay, interesting. It's very important because it's the, 
our, our mindset right now is puritanical. Hmm. It's, uh, if you, and, and you can actually trace it, by the way, from like Bacon and Hobbes yeah. all the way down to, uh, through Locke to our contemporary aspect. But anyway, go but on. No, so this. I guess my, my question is, you know, we're, we're living in this world, like this post-Christian world. And I guess the simple question is like, what do we do about it? Like, how do we engage? Because I think the temptation is to kind of retreat from the culture somewhat and like look at all of all of the horrible stuff that modernism brings and just kind of, you know, re remove yourself from that. But is there a way to engage in it? And like, is there hope yeah. to change the culture for the better, or is it just kind of like move on, wait for the well, next? Well, so so next what step? I would think is there are two things. Um, one is that we just have no like like I don't I think we should be cautious. We have to be cautious. Think, talking too much about cultures because they're just big and amorphous and they're, you can kind of see whatever you want to see in a given culture because it it's just so big. And it's also kind of this thing that's almost really aimless. Like nobody's really even in charge of it. It's just happening. And Lewis at the end of The Weight of Glory will actually say that like, you know, um, it's individuals in a way that matter because these are immortal. Each person we, we interact with will either end up being like an immor almost like a god before God, of course, under God, but a god or goddess with whom we would almost worship or a terror from whom we would flee. And he says, compared to that, the life of civilizations is a gnat. So I don't think Paul tried to say, like, let's change the Roman Empire. Like, no, it's like he had a vocation and he tried to live that vocation with the friends that he met and the people he engaged with, sometimes publicly and sometimes privately. He meets Prisca and Aquila because he's, he's a tent maker. And so in a way, really just remembering the dignity of each person and therefore, I don't know how to put it, if you have friends and you're friends with like five people, that's like five infin infinities. Like each person is an infinite, irreducible mystery. And so really rediscovering in a way, not the beauty of the collective, but the beauty of each person in a way is partly that idea of the communal, the, the communal understanding of the universe, right? You know, there aren't more, I don't know how to put it, if, if when, when we were here earlier, Elijah and I were here in the room talking earlier, an hour, uh, two hours ago or so, like, are there more, is this room now worth more than it was then? Not really. Like, I mean, I don't know. You have 50 people, you have two people. It's just, those are persons, and each person, in a way, has an infinite dignity. And so I think if we recover that as a whole, then we'd be thinking, wait a second. You know, grandma that you take care of, or the friend you meet, or the person you serve at work, these are actually more important. And the irony is when you occasionally a handful of people will begin for whatever weird reason, but not because they you know, begin to change society. So that, that, that I, think is, uh, I think is a key point. And then it's interesting, both Lewis and Tolkien, and Lewis encouraged Tolkien to publish The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien was just kept always editing it, and Lewis actually encouraged him, right? And Lewis wrote the, uh, one of the blurbs on the back of The Hobbit when it was first published. And at that time, Lewis was very famous, and Tolkien was not. And, of course, it was interesting, Tolkien later did not like the Chronicles of Narnia and tried to discourage Lewis from publishing them. But, you know, anyway. But one of the great things about the Narnia stories, and especially the Lord of the Rings, is just forces of, like, the, you know, these wars that are going on that are so large and these 
It turns out actually the act of a few people, a few habits from the Shire, a couple of young kids from England who get, go back into Narnia, a few people doing a few things, showing courage, recovering when they somehow begin to change the destiny of the universe. So I think it's also that idea that the most influential thing you do may not be having like becoming an influencer and having three million followers. It might be, you know, having um, you know a really good friend that you stick by, even as you know he goes through horrible things, but eventually comes back, um, or you know having a child, or again having. Just all those different things. I think it's real. I think we have to kind of like resist the idea of measuring people as numbers. Yeah. If you also end up being an influencer, that's influencer. That's not evil. I'm not saying that's bad, but it's our ability to kind of you know communicate to other people that I think really is um, what 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 is lasting. So in that sense, I think we should be bold, right? But be bold, but also just you know um, be human and kind of focus on the human scale and not on the mass scale. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.